This is the Rebel HR Podcast. If you're a professional looking for innovative, thought-provoking information in the world of human resources, this is the right podcast for you. On today's episode, Molly and I have the tables turned on us. We're guests on a podcast called the Generation HR Podcast. This was a short-term podcast set up by a couple of great HR students at the local college, and they asked some really insightful questions related to inclusion and how HR can support those efforts. Check it out. Hi, everyone. This is Aaliyah Baskey And Kaylee Worth. We are two students at the University of Northern Iowa seeking to bridge the generational gap and we're passionate about bringing awareness of topics throughout business and our community. So without further ado, welcome to the Generation HR Podcast. Today we'll be discussing the new LGBTQ Supreme Court ruling and how it affects those in human resources and the workplace in general. We have with us Kyle Rode, who is currently the Workforce Development Director for Cedar Valley SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, and he's also the HR Director for CPM Holdings. Kyle also has his own podcast called Rebel Human Resources, so the tables have turned a bit for him. (laughs) (laughs) Also with us is Molly Burdess, who is currently the President for Cedar Valley SHRM, and the HR leader for Bradford Companies. She has held HR positions in retail, sales, real estate, and manufacturing industries. So thank you for being here, Kyle and Molly. And Kyle, I am really enjoying you being on the other side of this this time. (laughs) I can't wait. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Just you wait for our end question. When you were asking me the question about my Twitter bio, we have a whole new thing in store for you. (laughs) I hope you throw in some curveballs, you guys. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so like we mentioned, they're both involved in Cedar Valley SHRM, and we've actually partnered with them for the Social Changemaker Project, which is something that our UNI SHRM student organization is currently working on. And the main purpose of the competition is to find a problem within your community and work with a group from the community to solve it. So with the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling stating that federal civil rights law prohibits employers from discriminating against workers based on um, their sexual orientation or gender identity, we saw a need for more awareness and education around this topic. Yep, exactly. And just to get a better idea of the problem that needed to be addressed, we also created a survey that was distributed to college students at the University of Northern Iowa and working professionals in our community as well. The results showed that there are some major areas of improvement that need to be made in both our educational and professional institutions. So my first question for the both of you is, Where do you guys personally think your company is at on the timeline of complete inclusivity? I know that's kind of a huge question to ask, but any initial thoughts or reactions to that first question? Molly's looking at me like, go ahead, Kyle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I I can touch on that. Just to um, touch on inclusion very broadly within my organization, I think 2020 has been a, a challenging year for everybody in human resources on a number of different avenues. But one of the areas that our employees have really looked at us to take a leadership role is related to diversity, inclusion, and equity. Uh, So specific to my organization, um, we actually uh, initiated a project to walk through uh, something called the Global Diversity and Inclusion Benchmarks, which is uh, from the Center of Global Inclusion. I can share that uh, with you if you want to share that in your show notes. But Essentially what it is, is a, it's a self-audit and there's 14 different criteria that you go through within your organization and you, anis, um, you answer those in honestly uh, as it relates to, to the uh, various dimensions of diversity. Uh, and, and as we looked at that and we went through that project, honestly, there's a number of areas that uh, we would consider ourselves uh, very, very early in our inclusion journey. So some of the areas uh, that we are specifically focused on is related to uh, internal uh, training and communication. 
making sure that we focus and foster uh, some of the um, the cultural sensitivity that's required within our organization. We are a, an international firm, so uh, we, we have to keep that top of mind. And then a couple of the other areas that we're really focusing on relate to internal HR practices. So things like ensuring that job descriptions are inclusive, uh, that postings uh, are inclusive, that our recruiting processes are standardized and equitable, uh, and that our pay practices are equitable. And there's there's some work that we need to do within our organization in order to achieve that. Uh, but we're in the process of building that structure and strategy right now. So a follow-up question that I have with what you were just saying, you said that it was kind of like an audit that you did. Um, does that have any resources for you um, after you kind of figure out where your main pinpoints are that you want to improve on? Um, where do you go from there? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one of the reasons I like the tool is, um, first of all, it's free, which is my favorite uh, favorite price for um any sort of project, but it's, it's also helps you with an action planning template. So uh, the idea behind doing the audit is uh, once you have assessed yourself and you can take an honest inventory of where you're at, now you know where the areas of highest impact are. So we took that and we really boiled that down into three primary areas, which was uh, the areas I mentioned earlier. So that was compensation practices, recruiting practices, uh, and internal uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, training and education. So, uh, and then there's there, there's some action plans within there. The only comment I would say is the challenge with any sort of action plan is it still needs to be tailored to your organization. So, um, we are taking that uh, as a deliverable with our HR team to continue to build action plans off that tool. I really like the idea of creating those action plans for all of those. That's really awesome. Um, Molly, where do you think your company is at on the scale of complete inclusivity to zero? Sure. Well, I don't know that if there's any organization that is like complete, right? I think we all have areas of opportunity, which I think is really important to understand. And because that's how you get action, right? So you got to understand there's always opportunity and then you got to take action. So my organizations, I am a part of two very different organizations, which is really awesome. The first one is retail. So we are public facing. I feel internally, we very much value diversity and inclusion. Um, we're really focused on improving our implicit bias in a couple of areas. The first one is public facing. So in our organization, there's a lot of fraud that happens. So we are training our associates on biases when we're looking at fraud and theft and things like that and how they're communicating that and how just the actions that they're putting, they're associating with those, with those incidents. Second, we are also working on bias from a hiring perspective. So we are a sales organization. We have found that our leaders like aggressive salespeople and usually the term aggressive goes with males. So we are very much um, working with our leaders to, to become more diverse with our, with our gender types. Regarding the LBGTQ plus community, um, I feel like we do a very good job internally in that organization. Now, my second industry is part of the salon and spa industry, which is actually really unique. And while, again, I think we, we, we do pretty good, we do have some work to do. And industry-wide, it's actually a really unique industry in regards to diversity and inclusion. I mean, the majority, it, it's very segregated, not, on, not intentionally, but typically the people that you attract are the people that look like you, right? Like if I go to a salon, I don't want somebody that only does men's haircuts to cut my female hair. That's just the way it is. And within the education system, they don't teach a lot of diverse cutting and hair techniques. So it's something that we're talking a lot about internally and also bringing education into the team so everybody can feel comfortable with every single type of hair and every single person that sits in our chair. That's a really good thing to implement. I think it's awesome that you bring opportunities to groups of people or communities where it's lacking, they're lacking the opportunity. I think more companies should um, like take a look at that. And I think that's awesome. Well, and I think that goes back to what Kyle said. It's very individualized for every organization. So you really just have to look at your business and understand your business and what opportunities you have. 
When it comes to the recruitment side of increasing diversity and inclusion, what's the main thing that you guys focus on to make sure that you're reaching out to those different groups? What's something that you would recommend for other groups or even just us as a student organization? We want to be able to increase who we're reaching out to, who we're giving opportunities to, who we're making aware of the different experiences and educating them on you and I, Sherm. How have you guys found success in doing so? Well, I'll start this off and I'll pass it over to Kyle. But I think first and foremost, you have to have data. You have to know exactly who you are targeting and who you are getting um, as far as applicants. And that's the first step. Then you can really evaluate that data and then take action based on what opportunities you're finding. Awesome. Yeah, I think data is good. I think on the recruiting side of things, my biggest successes have been being willing to change processes and completely throw out something that you did 10, 15, 20 years ago and try something new. So, um, you know, especially in the context of trying to be more inclusive in your recruiting, um, at a really eye-opening event earlier in my career, uh, and I, I'm in a manufacturing environment, uh, and I was uh, with a local manufacturer at the time, and I was complaining to somebody about, oh, I can't find anybody or, you know, my company struggles with recruiting and it's it's just really hard to find good people. That was the language I was using. And somebody rightfully cut me off and said, listen, there's only two reasons that you're not getting enough applicants. The first reason is you aren't marketing it correctly. People don't know about it. So, okay, check one. Somebody in the community doesn't know that I'm actively recruiting. Or the second reason is you have a bad reputation. So people don't want to work there. And that was kind of eye-opening to me. And in the, simplic- the simplicity of the, of the two points, I thought, wow, we'll probably suck at both of those things. And, um, and it, obviously, it wasn't intentional, but it certainly wasn't anything that we had intentionally worked to overcome. Uh, so we completely changed our marketing strategy at this organization. Uh, we went out into the community. We actually did active outreach uh, into areas that we had not been before uh, in this specific uh, organization. I was in a, a part of town that um, was not uh, in a great socioeconomic standing in the eyes of the community. Um, you know, and, and we hadn't really necessarily reached out to those individuals and said, hey, we've got upwardly mobile jobs. We, we pay you a livable wage. Uh, we had done all of our marketing previously on you know, online or in the paper, which many of these individuals wouldn't have seen. So we went out into the local community. I literally Googled uh, local churches and synagogues and mosques and, and any places of worship. And I just printed a bunch of flyers and drove around and handed them out to, to local uh, community and faith leaders and said, hey, can you spread the word? We're going to have a, a hiring event. At this point, we were having a hiring event on a Thursday. I figured we might get 20, 30 people to apply during a hiring event. We had 180 people show up at this hiring event on a Thursday. <laughs> I had I had to like recruit extra recruiters to come and help me. Like I was like begging production supervisors to come in and help me just sort through these people because we had to line out the door. And as we were polling people and talking to them about, you know, how'd you hear about it? They were like, oh yeah, you know, uh, one of my one of my church leaders took a picture of this, put it on Facebook, said, hey, check this out. They're, they're reaching out to our community. They want to, they want to help you succeed. Uh, we, we ended up at that point, we had 60 open jobs at this location. We ended up making 90 job offers. Uh, and that also built us up enough of a recruiting list that uh, we essentially had jobs prepped and filled before they even came open. So we were able to onboard and train people and just say, hey, we'll call you when we're ready for, for orientation for the hiring process. So by far the most effective uh, recruiting event I've ever been a part of, and it was simply because we completely changed our process. For me, not a lot has changed. I think the biggest thing is it's just getting some more attention. Um, really, there there wasn't a ton of u- uniformity between the states and the federal level, and I think that's what this is solving a little bit. Um, so for us, because we're in the state of Iowa, uh, these protections have, have been in law for some time. So that's been the biggest thing for me. I think Another thing is, again, it's caused more attention. Um, There was one stat that I found that I wanted to share. Now I can't find it, of course. I'll have to come back to that. It was a really good one. 
But what I do think some organizations have to think about, though, are like things like dress code policies, benefit offerings, a lot of things like that. Um, You know, one thing I think is really cool that came out of your survey is because these individuals had protections in the state of Iowa, I really didn't even think to communicate to, to my organization that this was passed on a federal level. Um, I think your survey said that individuals from this community would have liked to seen that. So in hindsight, I love that. And I totally dropped the ball and I wish I would have done that. And I still might. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Kyle, a lot of it comes from you guys just being willing to change. And I think that both Molly and Kyle, you really champion that. And obviously you're doing a lot of things that help you move forward on that continuum towards complete inclusivity. So for you guys with the policies that already prohibit employees from discrimination, um, how have things changed for you guys? Like, especially with this new ruling, I know that we were talking about earlier, we didn't really, or you guys didn't really feel like um, that much has changed because you already had those things implemented. With this new ruling, have you found any places that you can improve even further um, with the new resources that have been put out because of this ruling? One thing I did find that I I hope improves because of it, but there is a national LGBTQ task force that reported that transgender individuals' unemployment rate was twice the rate of the general population. So I found that to be really interesting. And again, I I just hope that it gets some more attention and we can get some more of these individuals in the workplace. From an outside perspective, I can see how there would have been a lack of education because if companies are already implementing different policies that that are not allowing people to do this sort of discrimination, I... I can see where there would be a gap. I feel like there would be HR saying like, oh, we've already covered all of our bases. But then there's the employee side saying like, I wish I would have known about this. Nothing might've changed for me, but it might've been helpful to just have been aware, especially if they were in the LGBTQ community. I know in our survey, 0% of people in the LGBTQ community had been educated on it by the school, which is also a main um, gap that we've also noticed as well. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. And I think task force and things like that um, at a federal level are going to make so much more change. Like I know we had it already um, kind of going in the state level, but those things I think will be really helpful, especially when at the federal level, we are more invested in analyzing that data, like you just said, about the transgender unemployment rate, then we can really focus on some of those things and hopefully improve at a national level. Kyle, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I always have something to add. Um, From my perspective, this ruling is just validation that the things that we've already implemented in many of our workplaces are the correct thing to do. Um, I think this this ruling is like 20 years late um, and it's ridiculous that it just now happened. And if, if I peel back and I look at my organization as an international firm, the U S is way behind on a lot of these issues. Um, and, and a lot of the challenges that we're facing right now related to diversity, equity, and inclusion are because of policies and practices and regulations that are in place that need to be undone quite frankly. So um You know, you think about redlining and some of the institutional barriers that are in place for people who are, uh, you know, from diverse backgrounds, uh, they're they're very prevalent uh, in in our society. And that's an issue. And I think as as an HR practitioner myself, I, I view it as my personal mission to be an activist within my workplace to ensure that some of these inequities don't filter into my team. Uh, and so as I look at, you know, the policies and procedures that are in place, they already had protection related to um, anybody in the LGBTQ plus community. You know, I remember distinctly, we went through a handbook revision about two years ago. And previously, we had all these different handbooks by state because every state has a slightly different definition of what a protected class is. Uh, and we don't have time to even talk about how ridiculous it is to have, quote, protected classes. 
versus just a non-discrimination policy. But I digress. The, the fact of the matter is we were trying to manage around all these state policies. At the end of the day, I said, why don't we just make all of this stuff against the policy for the entire U.S.? Why are we trying to figure out if it's legal in Texas or not legal in North Carolina or legal in Missouri? Let's just take everything, clump it together and be very, very clear that all of these things matter. And we consider every difference within the workplace to be what we would call a protected class. And everybody deserves the same opportunity for success within our company. Amen. You got me on my soapbox. <laughs> preach, brother, preach. Kyle, typically gender identity is not categorized under the ADA. Do you think this ruling is a first step to get that added to the ADA protections? I think it certainly reinforces that potential. So yes, I, I think it's I think it's a step in the right direction. But as I said, I, I I don't think it's enough, and it's too late. You know, I'd like to see these protections become broader. But the other thing I would mention too is that I I think as a as a private business, it's absolutely ridiculous that any organization is waiting for the Supreme Court to tell them that it's not okay to be non-inclusive. I mean, it's you know it. I look at that as like the organizations that are going to survive are not waiting for the law to change. They're out there actively changing policies and processes and and making their work environment a great place to work because they realize it's a competitive advantage and it's what our employees want. It's what people are demanding out of their workplace right now. So if any employers are listening to this thinking, gee, I guess we need to change all our policies now because of this ruling, I would just challenge you to say uh, you were about two decades too late. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's not about the law. Right. It's, about, it's the right thing to do. Right. If you do anything in HR out of a fear of a lawsuit, uh, your priorities are screwed up. I remember reading about this new Supreme Court ruling when it came out, and my first thought was, I already assumed this was a thing. I didn't know that this needed to be in writing for the people to not discriminate against someone based on their gender or sexual sexuality. But I also kind of want to take this in a different direction, a different kind of side of HR, and ask you about how going from a new person in HR to an experienced and well-versed HR professional, how do you deal with the different... Um, issues or problems that arise revolving around diversity and inclusion. I know it's kind of hard to go to college like we are at UNI and just learn all of the possible scenarios that could happen while we're working and then easily adapt to the various problems that you guys have talked about in past meetings before. So what's what's one like tip or advice you would give to HR students like us to better prepare us, ourselves to deal with these situations and people who are following along with the law and aren't two, two steps ahead like we would hope they would be? I would say just what we're talking about, I think people that are newly that are new in the profession, they focus so much on the law because that's what they know and really that's what you're taught in school, which isn't wrong. But I think as you as you progress in your career, it becomes more about culture. So my biggest advice to any HR individual and or leader in any organization is to focus on the culture, create a culture where diversity and inclusion is just a norm, right, where all types of people are accepted Nobody has to feel discriminated against or harassment. Make sure your leaders and your supervisors and everybody on your team knows exactly the kind of culture you, you have and what is and is not acceptable behavior. I think that's the biggest thing you can do because what I see are typically these organizations, like I'm assuming the ones that were cited in this ruling, it wasn't just a one-time thing. I think it was probably these little things that, you know, started like maybe little problems. And then there was some, a little bit of bias or harassment or just some jokes. And then they get into these bigger issues. Right. And it just becomes a part of the culture. Um, so, so my advice would be to stop it from the little things, stop the little things from happening. And then ideally you won't have the big issues like this. That would be my advice. Yeah, I think the, you know, the foundation for all this is just what I call just respect in the workplace. 
just setting really clear expectations. And a lot of this falls on frontline leaders, people that are that are working directly uh, in the field or directly with customers. If when you see something, you just need to you need to shut it down, and and be very clear with what the expectations are. Otherwise, you could put the best policy in place, but it it, it won't matter if if it's not being reflected in your your leader's behavior. And I remember us talking about this in a previous conversation, Kyle. I think you said every time something like this comes up, you feel like you have a choice. Like you feel like you want to show mercy to the person, but you also need to set a precedent for your whole entire organization that you're not going to accept these little things that happen because you know that they might turn into big things down the road. And I feel like it's a lot easier to just prevent those things in the first place and really hit the nail on the head right there rather than waiting till it becomes a bigger problem. I think it's a fine line. Really tough. I mean, you know, there's been situations where somebody's done something inappropriate and we've addressed it and we found that it, it actually came from a point of ignorance and the intention was not uh, what was portrayed or what was interpreted. And, and a lot of times what I found is, is when you get people to a common understanding and then you can educate people within the moment, that's when the actual change occurs. Um, it, but it it takes a long time. So if I can if I can reflect on the first question you asked as it relates to the timeline of complete inclusivity, my argument would be you're never there. You're always on the journey because everybody has something to learn every single day, whether we like it or not. We all have some ignorance that we need to understand. And I think it's really important for organizations to just know that their journey is never over because it creates a sense of urgency to continue to improve. Once you feel like you finish a task or a project, you sort of decline on your urgency to keep doing amazing with your inclusivity and diversity as well. Yep, well said. Molly, I know you've talked about before how you have a lot of experience with people transitioning to from one gender to another. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that and how you kind of navigated that? I'm sure a lot of people listening might have had the sim- a similar experience, and I think a lot of people would benefit from hearing how you've handled situations like that. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, we have had um, an individual go through a transition while working for us. We have also had individuals that we've hired that have already transitioned. Um, so I do have a little bit of experience with this. And Really what it boiled down to for me was open communication um, and understanding, you know, asking that individual what they needed from us, what they expected from us. And then I returned that. um, Here's what what you can expect from from us. Um, You know, one of my biggest like little things that I wish I would have known is what pronoun do I use for you? What do you what does this look like? And I'm glad I asked because they did not want to be called by their new or old gender. They wanted they and them. Okay. That's an easy thing that I would have never known if I didn't ask. Right. So how the process looked for, looked like for me, um, this individual had came to their leader leader really didn't know how to respond because we've never talked about it before. Other than again, just our culture in general is a very opening and welcoming culture. So he knew to be supportive and he came to me. So basically what I did is I met with that individual one-on-one, just communicated and listened. And again, what do you need from me? Here's what you can expect from us type of thing. Then I brought that manager in and we talked about, okay, this is what this is going to look like. This is how you can support this individual. This is what they need from you. Really just getting on the same page with our expectations. The second and last part was really our communication plan. So With this piece, I really wanted this individual included in how we were going to communicate this to the rest of the team. I wanted them to feel comfortable. I wanted them to feel confident going into this and and knowing that they had the support of everybody. Um, They made it very easy on on me. Um, This individual wanted to be a part of that communication. And again, because our culture is built the way it is and we support all types of individuals, everybody was very accepting. 
And then from that point on, it was really just checking in, following up, um, making sure the leader knew what to look for and make sure everybody was um, treating this individual the way that they deserve to be treated. And it, everything went really smoothly. Um, the biggest issue we had is this, this individual was taking some medication, obviously, and that had created some, some hormonal issues. But at that point, it became an FMLA thing. And then that's when you fall back onto everything that you learn in, in HR school. Is that kind of what you're looking for? Yeah, no, that's perfect. That's a great response. And Molly, you were saying that when that individual initially went to their leader, um, the leader wasn't quite sure how to respond because it hadn't really been something that you'd talked about before. Do you think that it would have been helpful if you did have the conversation and were a little bit proactive? Do you think that that would be helpful for a helpful thing for our listeners to do, especially now that this is um, a topic that's being talked about with the new ruling? Absolutely. Anytime you can train your frontline leaders on how to handle these issues, I think the better. Um, One thing that I do with my leadership team every single year, I love it. Um, I put them obviously through bias, harassment, all of that training. But then as a part of it, is I get all of our leaders together in one room. Now it's going to be virtually, of course. Um, And I give them real world scenarios that either I or my peers have seen in the past. And I said, okay, this is what's happening today. Work with, partner up with another leader and, and tell me how you would handle this if an associate came to you. And I put them through real life scenarios. And then we talk about it as an organization. And this is how we should, and this is how we shouldn't handle it. This is how we want our culture to be. And I will say that program um, has been huge for my organization and gets all of our leaders, especially because we, we are not in the same building on the same page. And I know that if and when um, somebody approaches them with, with an issue that they're going to be able to at least know how to navigate it. That sounds like an awesome program. Yeah, that does answer my question. And I really like the idea of doing kind of situational things and especially talking about it as a group. Mm-hmm. Kyle, do you have anything that you have um, that you do with your kind of frontline leaders along the lines of that? Um, not specifically quite like that uh, because of the geographic spread of our organization. It's it's tough to bring people together. We have done a lot more as it relates to uh, inclusivity training uh, now in a digital environment. Uh, but I think one of the challenges for an international organization is some of these things don't land uh, the same as they do in the United States. So uh, my approach is to uh, take a culturally sensitive lens out and focus on some of the things that are highest impact, uh, as opposed to focusing on more of a traditional learning and development program. I focus more on the one-on-one coaching with my uh, leaders within specific geographies. And and I, I have not had the experience of somebody uh, transitioning uh, within my organization, at least at least not any anybody that uh, I specifically am aware of. So uh, no, it's uh, appreciate hearing Molly's perspective on it. Hey Kyle, I'm curious for you um, regarding the international and your your organization. Is are we behind in the LGBTQ plus? Um, is it acceptable in other locations? What's is talked about? Where are we at on that spectrum? Mm. I would say my comment there is it's mixed. It, it, it's, it, it really depends upon um, the location. Is, uh, and then you get into the there, – there's just a very complex difference between a more collectivist society or a more capitalist society um, that can, can lead into that you know, thought process. Uh, I think where there's areas that are uh, more driven by religious uh, intent, uh, I think there's probably a stronger um, view against people in that community, unfortunately. Uh, but it it's still very, very personal to the person you're talking to. I, I don't think it's really that different in the U.S. or the Netherlands, for instance. It, everybody still has their own strongly held beliefs. So in your role as HR at that point, let's say you were to go through this and 
it was between two locations or individuals within two locations. Do you think at that point your job would be trying to get this other person to under this other culture to understand and accept this decision or would it be kind of moderating the piece? What, what do you think that would look like? Yeah. I mean, to be clear, our standards of business conduct um, protect all um, nationalities, creeds, sexual identities, sexual orientations, you know, we, we already have those standards in place. So, so in that case, if there were some sort of a conflict to arise, we would simply lean back on our, our corporate standards, um, our, you know, what I would call like our social standards. It would be more about the behavior and the action, not necessarily the belief. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We wouldn't, we don't necessarily try to impact beliefs, but we do, we do require specific behaviors within the workplace. And I think that's a really great thing because you're international. Maybe, like you were saying how some countries are kind of lower on the spectrum of the acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community. I think just having your organization be in those different countries can help bring awareness around those areas, even though you're not intentionally trying to change those communities that they're living in. You're just holding your employees to an acceptable standard to respect everyone, which probably creates a bigger impact than you intended, which is honestly a lot better. So, yeah. So I know that you both have said that basically it didn't change a whole lot for your organization when the new Supreme Court ruling um, made it basically prohibited to discriminate against LGBTQ members. But now um, our nation is going through sort of a change, I feel like, and there's been a lot of talk around um, the new Supreme Court justice being elected, Amy Coney Barrett. And I would like to ask you guys, if these rulings were to be kind of changed or reversed, would anything in your workplace change um, when it comes to implementing the policies? Or do you feel like you guys could still uphold what you're wanting to see in your, your organization, whether some of these things change or not? For me, it would not change. It's simply the right thing to do. So we would continue. I think for me, what it would impact, um, maybe for my employees, maybe, um, is regarding the benefits and what is covered, what is not. I think there might be some things there. Yeah, I would agree with that. Where there are uh, specific regulatory changes that allow us to do something to be more competitive on a global scale as it relates to something like cost of benefits, uh, you know, potentially there's taxation uh, benefits, you know, uh, we're a for-profit enterprise, you know, every organization is going to be looking at some of those things. As it relates to some of the social uh, matters, though, uh, no, I don't foresee any changes within what we're doing. If anything, regardless of who's sitting on the Supreme Court, we're going to continue to increase the focus and scrutiny on inclusion and equitable workplace practices, not because there's a government pressure, but because our employees need it. Mm -hmm. And do you guys see anything change, changing for like other organizations? I know you can both speak for your own, but you think about colleagues, maybe people in other areas. Do you see anything changing for them? Well, I mean, clearly this ruling happened because there are still some bad individuals out there that are making wrong decisions about their people. So um, while I would like to say no, I mean, I, I had the same take reaction as you guys did. Like what this even has, people are doing this. Um, so I'd like to say no, I mean, I'm sure it will. Not good business. It's, it's not the right thing to do in my, in my opinion. Kyle, what do you have to add? Um, as, as far as the question about other organizations, um, you know, my, my call to action is always that we need to we need to be the leaders within our organizations as it relates to these for all of the HR practitioners out there. I mean, this is this is what I consider my calling in life. For you organizations that are thinking this is silly and I'm going to sandbag until the government makes me do something. Keep it on up because I'm, I'm competing for talent and I'm going to win <laughs> against those organizations. So, um, you know, it's unfortunate. I do think that there's probably some bad actors out there that will take advantage of 
of, uh, uh, of others or, or don't necessarily understand it. But I truly believe in the spirit of complete capitalism, which says that if you are not treating people the right way, if you're not treating society the right way, if you're not treating the environment the right way, and also not treating your finances the right way, eventually your organization will cease to exist. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in that. And I think that doing the right thing isn't charity. It's just, it's just good business sense. Kind of to follow up with that. um, I know you talked about being an activist for diversity and inclusion and all sorts of things like that. How do you see diversity and inclusion changing within the next five to 10 years as people in the in generation Z are entering the workforce and company culture, diversity and inclusion is a main priority for us. I would personally take a company with amazing company culture and slightly less pay if it meant that I was going to be happy at work every day. So knowing that that's important for those in generation Z, how do you see the workplace changing in terms of these things within the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I mean, if you want to um, you know, look at the quantitative research that's been done on the generational differences, it's it's absolutely clear that uh, millennials, Gen Z, they have an expectation of diversity within the workplace. Um, it, it, that's just the way it is. So uh, as, as far as how I see it changing, you know, I, I do believe that, uh, as I said earlier, our workforce is going to just start simply demanding. Uh, that we take these steps and the organizations that don't are eventually not going to be able to recruit and more importantly, retain uh, the right talent or, or not have the right culture, uh, culture beats strategy. You've got to have the right people. You've got to have diversity of thought. It drives innovation, drives business results. Uh, and it's the right thing to do for our society. So I, I see this as becoming uh, the forefront of some of the work that HR professionals are going to be asked to do in the future. And, uh, and if you're an HR professional that's sitting here and thinking, wow, this is really hard and I don't understand this and I need help, get help now because five to 10 years, you're not going to have an option to not do this. Yeah, minority populations are growing. I mean, our organizations are, are going to be diverse if we like it or not. And the organizations that are not keeping up and are not creating that inclusive environment, they're going to fail. They're going to struggle. They're going to be called out on social media, right? We've seen that um, within the last few months. I think we're going to see organizations and leaders become more vocal about where they stand. And I think in the past, maybe that always hasn't been the case. I think they always thought silence was better. And I I think that's going to change. Um, I think work from home will probably stay around for a lot of organizations and a lot of industries, which is awesome because it allows the diversity to continue to grow within those organizations. You have access to a lot of different people um, that you might not have if you were on site. I totally love what all of you or both of you are saying. I can speak for Generation Z when I say that we appreciate the HR professionals now working to make the work environment better for when we enter the workforce. Have you guys thought about when you guys enter the workforce and if you work for leaders or HR professionals that maybe don't have the same views, how, how you'll handle that? I personally would make it my mission to kind of like read between the lines during my interviews to see, is this company's culture for the betterment of the employees or are they doing it for a paycheck? And to be able to say they have a job. I don't, I, I want my career to be something fulfilling, especially since I'm probably going to be spending 40 plus hours a week for whoever. I don't know how long. And so my internship right now, I really hope it like, I aspire to be a full-time employee there because of their company culture. And if I don't end up working there, I know that it is one of the top priorities in a job hunt if I were to do anything like that as well. This is something that I've definitely thought about. And I don't feel like, I mean, I feel like I'm experiencing this every day. Everyone has different point of views, even in our own generation. We have people who have different point of views. But I feel like for me, it's just, we need to come to like a common understanding. And I feel like just 
seeing things from their point of view helps me understand why they feel that way, why they have the beliefs that they do. So I feel like if I were um, working with a leader who had different beliefs than me, I feel like that those are some of the things I ask. I would ask, like, why do you have those beliefs? You know, when we talk about different generations, we've all been through so many different things during our formative years, and that's what really changes us. So I feel like understanding um, a little bit of that aspect helps me work better with them. And also the other piece of it, I think, is education. I think education has come such a long way when it comes to talking about our country's history and some of the systemic racism in particular. So I feel like if older generations were educated on that a little bit more, then maybe they would be able to see kind of where our generation is coming from since we've been learning these things in school. So I feel like that's kind of the route I would take, just trying to find a common understanding and really looking through each other's perspectives and also maybe not being super obvious about it, but subtly educating them on certain things. Like I know that I do that with my parents sometimes, like we watch some documentaries that deal with systemic racism and they realize things like, oh, this actually happened. So that's why you feel so strongly about this because you know about these things. So I feel like if we were able to do that, um, if I were in a situation like that with my future employer, I feel like we'd really be able to come to a common ground. And I think asking those hard questions during an interview, it shouldn't feel awkward to ask someone about their company culture or how they handle like certain inclusion and diversity in the workplace. And even in the community, once I like got to know, get to know people, I can kind of figure out where their views lie. And it kind of helps me get to know them a little bit more. And I just recently started standing up and like making a point to, to point out where someone is making this assumption that shouldn't really be made at all when it comes to different races or genders or anything like that. And I think people need to start changing the conversation and start saying, this doesn't make sense. And I, this isn't right. And the statement that you didn't that you made is incorrect. And you should think of it as a more inclusive angle as well. I love your guys' perspective. I love hearing it, hearing it. So you guys know generational differences are all BS, right? Well, <laughs> that leads perfectly to our next question. <laughs> yeah, um, we, yeah, obviously part of this podcast is we do want to do exactly what Molly said. We want to really learn about other generations and bridge the gap because I feel like, like you said, Kyle, there are really a lot of preconceived notations, positive and negative about all these generations. You know, people are doing all sorts of research on what we stand for, what older generations stand for. And we really want when we come into the workplace to be able to work together, no matter what it is that we um, feel as most important. So yeah, one thing that I do have for you guys that we are planning to ask every guest on our podcast is what generation are you guys in? And I'll respond with some of the things that we have learned in our professional readiness program at UNI with what is most important to your guys' organization based on, or your guys' generation based on research. Ooh, this sounds fun. Yeah, I love this. All right. All right. So am I supposed to respond or are you going to ask me? Yeah. So Kyle, what generation are you in? I am a quote old millennial. (laughs) How about you, Molly? I am a young millennial. Is that a thing? To me, you are. (laughs) We don't really segregate between old and young when it comes to the research that we were provided. Um, So... uh, I'll just list off some of the things that happened in your formative years that are said to really um, make you guys the way they are, you are, and to give you some of the characteristics that you have. So one is 9-11, which obviously is huge. Two, social media, which I don't know, Kyle, with you being the old generation of millennials, do you feel like you really experience social media a lot? Do you feel like it changed you? By the way, this makes me so happy. Uh, I, 
So social media didn't really exist until I was in college. Yeah. Um, and the internet, I didn't have internet in my house until high school. So the, the probably the closest thing we had was AOL IM. Mm-hmm. If anybody remembers, my screen name was Khawk95, which was super cool. Um, but it was for me, it was very similar to talking to somebody on the phone. Okay. It was just it was it was just a communication methodology. It wasn't necessarily like try to get the likes or try to get a blue check mark next to your name kind of a thing. I I just never really uh, never really got into that. Yeah. And along with social media, um, computers, and then Iraq. So a few of the attributes that they um, told us are kind of within your organization is that you are lazy and entitled. <laughs> do you guys feel like you can relate to that at all? Or do you see your peers as having any of those characteristics? And what do you do to kind of try to change the narrative when you find out another generation thinks that about you? Yeah. So, um, you know, my background, I grew up in rural Iowa. Um, I had two parents that were teachers. So as far as, you know, being entitled or having a lot of things, we didn't have a lot of things. Um, and I had to work, uh, I started work at 16 as a janitor in a healthcare facility, which was, um, gross. And, but, but I would say when I came out of school, um, I was, I was deeply aware of the perception of my generation and I actively worked to buck the trend, if you will. Um, you know, working 70, 80 hour weeks, um, doing anything that was asked of me, um, and, and, you know, I would, I would certainly not consider myself, uh, lazy or entitled, but, <laughs> but I did also grow up in the, in the, um, self-esteem, uh, generation as well. So my parents were teachers, as I mentioned, and it was all self-esteem building at that point when I was in my formative years. So my wife does remind me that I have an extremely healthy ego, but I'm sure Molly doesn't agree with that. Uh, no comment. <laughs> Uh, For me, I mean, so I graduated and I went right into the field of HR. And for the most part, I worked with pretty small to medium sized businesses. So I was like in there, right? Um, I I had my hands in everything. I was working with training. I was working with leaders. And all the buzz and all of these organizations was training and talking about these damn millennials. Um, I remember my first couple of years, I was like in these trainings and that's what they were doing is bashing on these millennials. And I'm sitting here like, oh my gosh, talk about uncomfortable. So I am um, very, yeah, I, I went through that as well. As far as like lazy and entitled for me personally, I grew up in my parents' They didn't have careers. They worked. They worked for their money, but they didn't have careers. And I knew I wanted to have a career. So I worked very hard um, to get where I wanted to go. They didn't have a ton of schooling. I wanted that. So I wanted that for myself. But I don't know that I would use lazy and entitled. Molly, um, did you ever feel ashamed that you were a millennial? I did. When I first started, I felt like oh my gosh, I don't deserve this job because I wasn't top dog by any means. But when you're talking about a smaller organization, I mean, and there's an HR department of two, you have a lot of responsibility. And it made me feel like I do not deserve to be sitting here like, oh gosh, now I have to work 10 times harder to prove these people wrong. Yeah. I mean, I I struggled with like, uh, I don't know if you'd call it imposter syndrome, but for sure. I certainly didn't tell anybody how old I was. Uh, I grew a beard as quickly as possible. You know, I, I was glad to see gray hairs because uh, honestly, you know, in the back of my mind early in my career, I felt like nobody's going to take me seriously if they, if they know I'm a millennial, you know, if I'm outed as one of these millennials. Um, and, you know, I realized later on in my career that was extremely unhealthy and, and that I brought a perspective that was helpful to the business. Um, but that took that probably took ten years, ten years in the uh, in the field before I really got comfortable, you know, being authentic with my age and generation. Which is one thing I'll say about you guys. Like I love that you guys just own who you are and what you think. Um, I think a lot of millennials that I saw didn't do that. We more had that ashamed. 
I think it's important that you guys just reflect on it because I know people listening, a majority of them might be millennials and they'll feel like they can relate to you. And there's also a reason that you both are on this podcast because you guys have done great things in human resources and you are an exception to the stereotype of millennials. So it's awesome to get a perspective from a different generation and to people who have worked to get where they are as well. Yeah, and I wanna touch really quickly on one of the stories that they told us about why people have that perception about millennials and how it actually came about in the workplace. So the story that they were telling us while they were teaching us about these different generational characteristics is that, you know, a millennial got a job and it was their first day on the job. They wanted to do really well. They wanted to be really involved and there was a meeting happening. So they were like, oh, well, I'm going to go to the meeting. So they went and they sat down in the, you know, in the meeting room and everyone was just like, why are they here? This is their first day on the job. Like what makes them think that they should be in this meeting? And it really goes back to what I was saying before. You know, we need to be having those conversations when something like this happens. Like, why did they do what they did? You know, we can't just sit back and assume that that person thought they were entitled. They just wanted to be really involved in the organization and they thought that's what was expected of them to go to that meeting. But to other generations who may not have been raised the same way, they were viewing it as, oh, this person is their first day on the job and they think that they get to be in this meeting. Like how entitled are they? You know, so I feel like if we really want to bridge the generational gap, like what we're saying, we need to talk about those situations instead of, you know, kind of sitting back and thinking our own thoughts about them. Yeah. And even going back to the topic, I mean, stop assuming about everybody and just learn, learn and try to understand. I love that. Thanks, Leah. So I'm going to read you guys a quote, and this will sum up how I feel about generational differences. All right, I want you to guess who said this. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders, and they love chatter and place of exercise. Children are tyrants, not the servants of their household. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents. They talk before company. They gobble up food at the table, and they tyrannize their teachers. Any guesses? What generation do we think that is? Yeah, who, yeah. What generation? Who said that? Some of those sound like my siblings, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what generation said it, or what generation are they talking about? Either or. All all your guesses are legitimate. I would say. This is so cliche, but I have to guess that a boomer said it. <laughs> Okay, Boomer. That's an okay, Boomer. Okay. So that is a quote from Socrates. Oh. And the reason I share that is that basically this whole generational differences thing is just rebranding people complaining about kids these days. Definitely. And it's been around forever. So I think generational differences are kind of BS. So what generation would Socrates be in? Like the first generation? (laughs) Way old. That's awesome. I'm sorry. I I totally threw you off your questioning line. No, it's totally fine. I'm not sure that we have any other questions other than how thankful we are that you guys took an hour out of your day to come talk with us. Going back to the podcast, sorry. If I was a listener and I wanted to reach out to you guys or learn more about your HR experiences, how could a listener get in touch with you? We could definitely add some things on our the website that we have, as well as post it on the podcast notes as well. I'll start because my list is short compared to Kyle's. LinkedIn, Molly Burtis. Um, also, anything Cedar Valley Sherm related, we'd love to have you connect with us as well on Facebook, LinkedIn, all the stuff. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a heavy LinkedIn user, uh, Kyle, K-Y-L-E, Road, R-O-E-D. Um, or you can check out uh, the podcast, which is at rebelhumanresources.com. I actually have a rant coming up about millennials uh, next uh, in about a week and a half. And then um, the other place uh, you can check out, I've got a blog at uh, kyleroad.com. 
uh, you can check out the blog and then we've got the archived episodes of the podcast there as well. If you want to check that out. So yeah, I'd love to connect. I always looking for guests. If somebody uh, is, is, would like to uh, chat about rebel human resources, I'd, I'd love to uh, welcome a uh, guest on there as well. Well, thank you guys. So that information with their LinkedIn links and some of the links that Kyle and Molly both talked about, those will be on our website. And for further information or resources that we've also discussed in this podcast, those will be on our website as well. So credits go to Skylar Reader and Claudia Mathis for the marketing and design of the podcast. And remember, as Henry Ford once said, coming together is the beginning, keeping together is progress, and working together is success. All right, that does it for the Rebel HR podcast. Big thank you to our guests. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we have. No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.